Hello and welcome to the uh, Shades of Green podcast. I'm Juanita Garcia. My name is Bryant Williams. I'm the uh, Rasheed Wallace to her Jerry Stackhouse, and you know we're uh, go go Tar Heels, right? You know, <laughs> we're um, we're UNC, you know we're North Carolina uh, flavored this uh, episode. We have a, a amazing guest from the from the uh, the from the Tar Heel State. We have a uh, Julius Tillery. Am I cr- pronouncing your uh, name correctly, Julius? That, that's correct. All right, Julius. Um, Julius uh, reached out to us um, after hearing about the podcast and has a pretty rich background um, in environmentalism. And so, you know, I'll let Julius introduce himself and then we'll, you know, kind of pick his brain a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Hey, everyone. Um, like like um, Brian said, I'm Julius Tillery, um, located in North Carolina. And uh, come on and raise up. <laughs> North Carolina, come on and raise up. But uh, yeah, I, I've been an environmentalist all my life. But I didn't always refer to myself as an environmentalist. Um, I grew up a, a farmer. I'm a fifth generation cotton, soybean, oh, wow. commodity farmer. And uh, uh, I left home at 16 to go to boarding school. And uh, after college, I went right into agriculture work. And I've been working all across the state and doing stuff with agriculture since 23. Since I've been 23, I'm 30 now. And uh, I've just built this reputation of helping farmers, and I don't think we talk, uh, I don't think enough farmers consider themselves environmentalists. Yeah. That's something that I, I want to put out there. Yeah, they, and they're definitely, I mean, they're definitely stewards of the earth, you know, yeah. def, definitely stewards of the soil and the environment. So, I mean, like, they should consider themselves environmentalists. Absolutely. Now, I will tell you what started me, because started me calling myself an environmentalist, is my day job, I work for an organization called the Conservation Fund. Okay. We're, a na- we're a national environmental organization dedicated to land and water conservation with the dual mission of uh, economic development while conserving land and water. So uh, we're, we're just a, a small, lean group that's doing work all across the USA, and especially in North Carolina. Wow. Where, um, what's the what's the uh, website like? How can we how can people find more? Where can people find more information about the conservation for, fund? You can look us up on uh, just Google the conservation fund. Okay. And uh, our website is up there. I think it's the conservation the conservationfund.org. Okay. But if you Google the conservation fund, our website is uh, is full. It's intensive. We got a lot of different types of programs that we do because it's not just uh it's not just easements conservation easements. A lot of people think that uh, organizations like mine's. Uh, all we do is uh, conservation easements. No, we work in forestry. We work in uh, 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 financing uh, land deals. We work in uh, uh, community strategies, community uh, conservation planning. Uh, it's a whole variety, wide variety of things we do. And I'm one of the agricultural specialists uh, that our conservation fund has on, uh, on staff. What do you do as an um, agricultural specialist there? Well, uh, what I do typically is uh, I help farmers and landowners and community groups, grassroots organizations. I help them um, basically increase the uh, the fresh food access across the state. Um, that's pretty much the uh, number one goal of my job is I do a lot of technical assistance, providing technical assistance. Uh, also, I do a lot of facilitated networking. I make sure that people who need to be in, uh, in connection with each other are connected. And uh, last thing, we do, one of my last roles is uh, I work as a funder. So 
Um, we I help make decisions on grant projects, and also I'm a business developer for our uh, financial lending in, and I help connect farmers to our, our lending pool to help them build their capacity to do more work. Wow, that's awesome. We we desperately need more people of color that are working as funders and business developers. So and so. You so you you've met Juanita in the past though, right? Like you guys yeah. met each, mm-hmm. each other in person. Yeah, mm-hmm. we met um, at the BMRASDCon last year in Raleigh. The Building Material Reuse Association's mm-hmm. uh, DCon conference. Yeah, um, we met through um, the US Green Building Council. Okay, they had a uh, like a design hackathon uh, for his uh, the the project he presented uh, the Garysburg. Uh, food hub. If oh. if you'd like to talk about that, yes. So uh, where I'm originally from, it's a, a very rural community. Um, you know, the town of Garrettsburg has around a thousand people population wise, and wow. it doesn't have a grocery store. And the town beside it doesn't have a grocery store. Actually, in in the county that I'm from, from, I think we only have maybe two or three grocery stores in the whole county. So it's a big food desert. However, it's a rural area, so you have people who have access to land to grow foods. And we're trying to to increase the economic economic activity in the area by utilizing this asset of uh, of land and farmers we have in the community and try to uh, start a food hub business that can help develop some type of economic and social and has social influence on help having the people in the community to eat better foods. Because when you have an economically depressed area, you're going to have a lot of other issues that come along with that as well. It's like social issues like uh, poverty, um, uh, hunger, food insecurity, all those issues come together. So um, we're hoping that the Food Hub Project is something that can help with uh, social, environmental, and economic uh, issues. Like, this is a whole triple bottom line project. Wow. Yeah. Wow. No, that's a pretty interesting project. So let me, let's, let's, let's take a step back a little bit. So like you, all right, so you're a fifth generation farmer, you said? Yes. How big, Um. so you grew up on a farm? How large is your family's farm, if you don't mind my asking? Uh, we have about 125 acres in production. Wow. Um, farm all together is around 400 acres. Okay. And, primar- and you said primarily soy and cotton? Soybeans, cotton, yes. Okay. Um, have there, have there been um, any other uh, co- uh, commodities that you, that you guys have pro- uh, produced or grown on, on site? Well, like- we, we've raised um, peanuts, but we got out of the peanut business, and we've also done... Um, um, corn in the past. Okay, okay. Corn is a tough crop for us, so uh, we we stuck with this cotton and the soybeans. That's, That's what we have success. All right. Now, being in um, you know, just as a quick aside, being in North Carolina, have you ever has a fam- has your family ever grown tobacco or tried to just you know just inquiring, just wondering. Well, the funny thing is, I, I know I, I believe that the reason my family has never has never raised tobacco, no, we never raised tobacco, is because the first generation of. Uh, the first person that comes to Tillery Farms, the first Tillery, he was a, a pastor. So I think he, I believe he was uh, against smoking. Okay. Very cool. So, so my family's never been in, um, in, in tobacco. By the way, I, I told you about the cotton and soybeans, but yeah. we also raise um, green leaf vegetables. So we do some um, vegetables for the farmer's market. Nice. That's in the food hub, the Garrisburg okay. food hub. Okay. Um, so five generations ago. So would your family, so... Would your family have started as, um, I mean, like, you know, how far back have you ever, tra- have you traced your family's um, lineage? Well, uh, it's quite interesting. Um, not far away from um, Rich Square, where my family farm is located, is a town tillery. 
to oh, people. Oh, wow. Around. So a lot of people from, you know, the, the state, when they hear my name, they ask me, all right, where's your family from? Um, the Tillery, North Carolina. Actually, we are from Tillery, North Carolina. Uh, the first generation of D.L. Tillery that I was telling you about, uh, he moved from, he's the first person to move from Tillery Plantation and uh, moved to the first pl- uh, port on uh, part of our family farm. Wow. So he was born right after the Emancipation Proclamation. Wow. It was like in the 1880s. So he would have been... Would have been the first freed man in your family then? First freed man in my family, yes. Wow, wow. That's amazing to be able to trace that history that far back. You know, so well, we're close to the history, man. You know, yeah, yeah. 20 minutes away from where the farm is, so uh, it's not <laughs> far away. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And so, all right, so now you grew up on the farm. You say you started at a boarding school at 16? Yeah, so it's a uh, North Carolina School of Science and Mathematics. Look it up. It's the number one school in the country right now. Right, so uh, I graduated from the Illinois Math and Science Academy. Um, oh. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in the consortium of uh, of schools. That's awesome. Like yet another connection, huh? Yeah. <laughs> What's your mascot? Uh, Titans. Okay, where are the unicorns? <laughs> oh, that's much better than the Titans. Wow. <laughs> yes. And so, where'd you go to college? Uh, UNC Chapel Hill, Tar Heels. Okay. Oh, why am I not surprised? I should have, you know, like should have, should have just guessed. You know? So, all right. And so, um, you studied. Would um, would you study while you were in school? Economics. Economics is my major, and uh, entrepreneurship was my minor. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what, I mean, like, so you didn't want to, like, are you, so are you back in the family business to a certain extent? I mean, cause you, you know, I know you have the day job at the conservation fund, but mm-hmm. you know, do you, um, are you involved intimately with the family farm or do you have siblings that are run at, like, how is the fam- the farm run at this point? Well, my, my dad is pretty much in charge of the farm. He's, okay. he's the main operator and I'm an only child. So, oh, okay. Uh, oh, okay. That's why I have to be on the farm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely do. Um, but uh, row cropping, does, it's not as intensive as uh, like raising livestock or, sure. or vegetables even at that. But uh, I have my aunt and a few first cousins that live on the farm as well. Okay. So uh, we all work on the farm in some type of capacity to you know, keep, it, keep it going. But okay. with the row crops, it doesn't require me to be there every day, but mm-hmm. it just requires when I'm there to be working. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now um, I haven't had the chance to read it yet because I'm, you know, like I'm, I'm behind on my research on, <laughs> um, on Julius Tillery. But I did see an article on um, LinkedIn about some of your work. Um, are you, mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that article? The, re- the most recent article was uh, I did an article for this group called Made Change. Yes. And basically, what what they're doing is they're highlighting businesses that that are uh, that that are trying to make social change while making money at the same time. Okay. And so, like I told you, I'm a cotton farmer. Uh, I don't know how much you know about the cotton industry, but most of the cotton that we're producing in the United States, and by the way, we're the third leading producer of cotton in the world. Okay. You have China and India, uh, one and two, and America, most of our cotton is going over to Asia to be processed and turned into, you know, uh, textiles and mm-hmm. clothing that we wear. Mm-hmm. And um, this business model has been really... Uh, 
it's been really tough for cotton farmers. Typically, we rate, we, we, we get somewhere between 70, 80 cents per pound of uh, for cotton, and it's, it's a really tight and profit margin. But if you go shopping, you see that these clothing, they cost a good amount of money. Like, I never understood. I was, when I was younger, I didn't understand how we could raise so much cotton, but we can't even afford clothes in, in, in malls and, and, and retail stores. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now that I'm an adult, and I'm like, we're in this, what's 2017? We should, I should be able to make more money for my cotton than I'm making currently. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, well, the issue that I was bringing up and why I started Black Cotton is not only just because of the current structure of the cotton market, because it, it favors the, the extremely large um, cotton farms because mm-hmm. the margins are so thin. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I'm what I also noticed is most Black cotton farmers are out of business. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm the youngest cotton farmer that exists. I've been right. saying it online, and I've been trying to find other cotton farmers. And I'm just keep coming, striking out. I'm not finding people that's raising cotton. So I felt to myself that if I didn't do something, I may be the very last cotton farm, black cotton farm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So uh, you want to talk about sustainability. Yeah. It's not always about chemical use. Sure. Sometimes sustainability to me means can you hold on to this land? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah far too and, often. And, go. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Well, well, far too you know, often, I, environmentalists I, I, look at um, sustainability, and they're just looking at the the environmental sustainability of it. Is the the touchy feely, you know, hugging trees, saving whales aspects of it? But sustainability, like you know, a big part of that is the financial sustainability of a of a process or a project as well. You know, so yeah, I mean, well, like you, if you're not talking dollars, it's not you know, you're not really making any sense in it. Well, you know why that exists, right? Why's that? Inside of environmentalism and conservation, there's a lot of privilege. Yes. Please, unpack that. Unpack it. That privilege is why a lot of people who are environmentalists don't see themselves as environmentalists. Mm -hmm. We always paint things with this brilliant, nice paint, uh, painted picture. Like sunny skies and... Mm -hmm. um, finely manicured yards and mm-hmm. and landscapes that's that privilege inside of uh, environmentalism that keeps a lot of people like myself out of it because there's a lot of people across our country that makes a living off working the land exactly yeah. exactly and those people who, who make a living off of working land m- not most of those people are environmentalists yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, and I mean, all I, I work with all different types of farmers. You know, like mm-hmm. for instance, people we talk nasty about. For instance, tobacco farmers, hog farmers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, chicken farmers who use factories. And I'm not trying to promote what they're doing, mm-hmm. but nobody that's in the business of making money off their land don't care about environment. Right. Most of these people care about the environment. However. The privileged situation people who care about environmentalism, um, environmentalism, we demify people and turn them away from being environmentalists instead of saying, hey, come along and be an environmentalist. Learn how you can protect the land better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, and that's, that's what we great. need to do is we need to make more common ground between these people who's working on these lands and try to figure out how we can include and grow our number of environmentalists. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I agree with you entirely. We, there's all these silos within the environmental field. And I think even, you know, like I remember reading this article. I'd have to I'll have to look it up for uh, so we can post it on the um, on the uh, WordPress site when we post this um, article. But 
there was one talking about there, how there was a split among the environmental field um, within the environmental movement, you know, shortly after the civil rights movement, because there was the privileged, you know, the older, you know, the older, richer white environmentalists that went in one direction. And then the, you know, like the more, um, you know, the underprivileged, under underserviced environmentalists, the people that were, you know, the, my, like me and Juanita's grandparents that may have been growing tomatoes and greens in their backyard, you know, that are living in the inner city urban areas. We don't, you know, like we don't, we're not out here hugging trees and saving whales. Yeah. We're looking at other environmental issues. We're trying to close, you know, we're trying to stop coal burning power plants from polluting, you know, polluting and choking out our kids. You know, like there's different issues. So we're not privileged enough to look at, you know, like saving the whales and the polar bears. We're trying to save our kids from asthma, you know, but like we need to break down these these barriers so that everybody can see it from the same perspective. You know, it's the same conversation that we have here in the Chicago area oftentimes is, you know, like the smaller grassroots community environmental organizations are looking at the environmental, looking at um, environmentalism as a way of economic development and public health. Um, whereas though a lot of those larger environmental organizations are looking at the environment as a way for recreation. Like we don't have yeah. time for it, for yeah. it. We're still, I mean, I can't go outside. I can't go out on the Chicago river because it's, you know, polluted with pet Coke and manganese dust, you know, so I'm, I'm not trying to canoe out there. I'm trying to get that cleaned up. So I just, you know, don't have um, neurotoxin neuro diseases and such, you know? Yeah. So. Well, I want to brag a little bit about my organization, oh, please Conservation do. Fund. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look a little bit into the Conservation Fund, our president, Larry Zetzer, he did a TED Talk uh, uh, last year. No, it was, the, it was the end of 2015 where it was, he was talking about this um, this thing called convergence, mm-hmm. where we bring business people together and conservation people together and you converge those two together to build a, a larger movement with more with more power that we can leverage in, in strategies. Right. And that's what the environmental list and the environmentalism movement has to has to put into its core is that people who are using the land to make a living, those mm-hmm. people are environmentalists. How do we better support them? Right. Because this right. is a, also one big thing in our country right now is jobs. Everybody's mm-hmm. trying to find the answer to where are more jobs. Right. Sometimes we just gotta look into our natural resources and and refiguring out how we can develop jobs using our natural resources. Right. Just as I was telling you about my business, Black Cotton. Um, what makes my business special is um, when I since I first started at the end of last year is I, I along with uh, some friends we went out and you know we picked the cotton with the shears and we put it into boxes. This is cotton that is not traveling across the seas using all those um, yeah. fossil fuels to mm-hmm. travel to, uh, to China, right. travel to Asia. Instead, I'm keeping this cotton right here in the country, and I'm directly selling it to, to my customer base here. Right. That's yeah. a conservation move in it, in itself. Exactly. However, conservation and environmentalism has not looked at that type of practices as environmentalism. Wow. Instead, yeah. what we have uh, promoted is how can you get more access to land mm-hmm. and to tell more businesses, no, you can't run your business the way you want to. That has been the core of environmentalism and conservation, which we should change. Wow. What? Um, so what direction would you like to see it going? I mean, I do see I mean, I, you know, I get I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I want you know, flesh out your own. Um, what you what you think we should do going forward a little bit more? How we how can we work 
in tandem with uh, you know how can the environmental feel how can environmentalists work more in tandem with um, industry, be it farm, be it you know um, manufacturing, so on and so forth. One thing we need to do is promote natural products that are grown in our country, grown and made and developed in our country. Right. Um, And that's the way to get back to job creation, right? Yeah. Yeah, job creation. I mean, like, even like my black, going back to my black cotton business, what's making the business kind of grow and, uh, you know, develop gets develop some momentum is so many people don't know what real cotton look like like yeah. so many people i see their first experience with this natural product yeah so we as the american consumers are so used now to process fake stuff coming from asia and we use it all different different types of ways wow yeah. So I think if we want to if we want to promote environmentalism, mm-hmm. we have to be able to promote natural products in America. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what's going to get people interested when people can see that they can make a living again around using the natural resources that they walk by every day. Yeah. No, that's great. I, yeah. I agree with you entirely. Um. And there's so many different things that I want to talk yeah. talk about and unpack. But, I, you know, I, I feel like we're going all over the place. But, but with that being said, like, like I want to go back to um, so you were at the decon conference in Raleigh this past mm-hmm. um, in 2016. Tell me, like, how'd you get how'd you hear about the that conference and how'd you wind up getting involved with it? Well, um, I went to uh, what's the name of the group? The uh, Green the the Green Builders. Oh yeah, it was the U.S. Green Building Council. Yes, U.S. Green Building Council. I went to one of their meetings. I have a buddy that um, he was he he's one of the organizers for um, the Raleigh Durham Chapel Hill the Triangle area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like what do you call it? Units of U.S. GBC. Mm-hmm. And I went to a meeting. I spoke to them about some of the things I'm working on. And then I, I connected with some of the people that's, uh, you know, with the work they're doing and so many construction folks and mm-hmm. uh, engineers, architects. And I, I spread the word about the, uh, the food hub business, um, project that I'm working on with Northampton County. Yeah. We don't really have a lot of resources in my home area to, uh, uh, getting experts, you know, and pay for experts. So I try to, you know, I try to network as much as possible to find people that's interested in our story and trying to help us out. And uh, luckily, USGBC has been uh, been more than grateful, uh, great at helping us uh, with uh, connect with the advanced group. Mm-hmm. And advanced connected me to the decon, and uh, that's why I presented it to the decon group. And uh, I've been getting good results since then. Good. Yeah, so, um, yeah, uh, as I understand it, um, the building um, that you started that um, the food hub out of in Garysburg is, uh, was a, a grade school, is that right? Yes, it was an elementary school, and uh, the elementary school was, uh, was closed by the school system, so the town bought the elementary school to use it as a community center because they still use the library and the gym. And mm-hmm. what we've been doing since then is finding new uses for the rest of the school building. Wow. So that does kind of tie into um, the BMRA and the decon. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of reusing that building. But also, I mean, I think, you know, like along the line of, so we talk about DuSabling on this, on the, um, on the podcast fairly often. And, um, you know, so DuSabling is kind of a, a counterpoint to Columbusing. Mm-hmm. Columbusing is seen as, you know, kind of, 
cultural appropriation, uh, you know, like when um, non-Indigenous folks, I'm not going to use those terms, you know, non-Indigenous folks come in and see something that, you know, people of color have been doing and kind of stick, you know, plant a flag on it and, you know, claim it as as though they discovered it, you know, so like um, the Kardashians using having box braids, you know, like where we've had cornrows for generations, you know, um, so DuSabling is kind of you know, people of color taking back these things that have been appropriated. But I think building material reuse is something or, you know, creative reuse of structures and materials is something that, you know, like farmers, especially, you know, African-American farmers have been doing, you know, since the, you know, since the start of time, probably. Right. I mean, like this is, you know, this is nothing new to you, I would imagine. Right. Oh, no. Um, and you have to be resourceful mm-hmm. these days. Um my areas are, you know, rural county. We don't have a lot of resources, very little tax uh, tax rolls that's helping, helping us pay for, you know, budget some of this stuff. So we had to use whatever resources we have in the community. Yeah. So I'm really happy that this town is involved that, that um, the elementary school so that we can be able to use it for projects like this. Yeah, yeah. And even, you know, it's like, again, I'm you, because you've talked about so many different things and it's making me think about, a lot of different things as well. So I look at um like farming farmers that I know like they instead of tearing down um old barn structures, you know, there's a I've heard of um heard of a lot of farmers that will burn down their um old barn structures that are getting ready to collapse, you know, like they'll burn them, but you know that that's a way that they can till that back into the soil, you know, and mm-hmm. use it as um fertilizer. Is that correct? Or am I just wrong? Heading no, you, in, I think the ashes will turn, it could be like some type of fertilizer. Yeah. Thing. Yeah, it adds some to the soil. Yeah, but then you have like environmentalists from outside saying like, "Oh, that's such a shame that they're burning this down," you know. So I mean, but it is kind of how you, if you you know the perspective that environmentalists are looking at, you know, if we're not communicating and breaking down these yeah. silos, we won't really know what the you know what farmers are doing and what they're you know what you know again you are being good stewards of the land, you know. Well, let me tell you something, um, Brian. We have as environmentalists, we have to prioritize what we want to advocate for and against. Mm-hmm. Like what you just said about uh, our environmentalists will be against uh, burning a, a, a broken down building that could you know be tilled into the ground. Mm-hmm. That same environmentalist will travel back and forth between the uh, across the country on airplanes, putting all types yes. of diesel fuel into <laughs> the environment. Travel all across the country back uh, uh, to other countries just to be able to view something that they could have viewed online. And then we'll, and then we'll go and talk about how much of a more of an environmentalist they are compared to someone else. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, we got to priority on what we really say we are. Yeah. And like, I'm not going to say it's wrong to fly because definitely it's a convenience. But I'm not going to judge someone to on, on, on a small thing like burning down that building. That the you know the what is going to the air from burning that building, comparing it to something else that we do. You know. Exactly. Yeah. It's all about priority, in my opinion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about the it's the food hub the gary the gary's gary'sburg food the hub? gary'sburg food hub i mean i feel like we're like there's still levels to yeah, it that we yeah. haven't even touched on mm-hmm. yes i'll I tell you what the project is moving forward but it's moving slowly because you know we're under resourced community so yeah. it's still also new to us in the ideal of us raising so much money to get a building fixed up for sure. a, a, 
a big hall, like a, a food hub distribution center. So what we've been doing is trying to find ways to break the project down into phases mm-hmm. and even 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 further into smaller phases. Like the farmer's market was phase one of the of food hub project starting. Right. The next phase that the town is going through right now, and uh, I'm speaking a little early, but I think everything is correct. But Thursday, we're finalizing through the town uh, uh, town board approving turning the classrooms in the building into incubator businesses, um, business setups. Like we're trying to turn those classrooms into uh, like incubator um, business set, uh, setups and business fronts for these small businesses in the community. Try to uh, try to uh, spur some more economic activity, wow. and also we want to help foster the small businesses in our area by giving mm-hmm. them a storefront for a low uh, low rate a low rate on uh, lease rates for those classrooms wow that's no that's awesome i mean yeah. like so you know so Juanita had mentioned um the plant chicago you know in the um in chicago's back of the arts neighborhood right before we jumped on the phone call and that's i guess that's part of the reason why she was comparing it cuz the you know the plant chicago is based in the underserved community in the chicago area the back of the arts neighborhood and it's food uh neighborhood that's a food desert until um until a walmart uh, food market was constructed a few years back. There was no made, you know, the, there wasn't a major grocery store for a mile or so, um, and then you know, and then you have that one small uh, grocery store. But then when you go away from that one, there the next one's like two or three miles away at best. So like people had limited access or you know to clean and healthy food. Yeah, um, and also um, we should mention the back of the yards is named for having been. Uh, the back of the stark yards where um, uh, animals were broken down and, and uh, butchered. Um, and that's long gone now. Yeah. Uh, but that's the, and that space where the plant Chicago is, was, uh, was a, a building packing. that was a meat packing plant. Yeah. Um, and so now it's being used as a, as a, um, you know, as a business incubator around food. Um, it's also being used as a, uh, clo- you know, to educate around a closed loop, processes, mm-hmm. you know, um, where, you know, a lot of closed loop processes are, you know, like are built into farming, you know, yeah. so here you have um, a facility that has a bunch of incubator, um, small businesses that are incubating, that are growing and you know, ideally they'll become successful and move out of the plant, but, you know, they start there and they share resources, you know, one person's waste is another person's resource to kind of use, you know, so you have um, a brewery that has spent hops that's used to grow mushrooms mushrooms that are used that can be composted to use be used to help grow plants and you know et cetera et cetera et cetera yeah. but you know but i do see the parallels between the two yeah there's definitely parallels and i hear so many good food food work ideas is coming out of chicago so while i'm saying it i want to give a shout out to rihanna lynn from uh she's a unc alum and she's in Chicago right now with the Food Trace app, and she's—I've I've been keeping my ears and eyes to what's going on in Chicago through her. So I'm proud of you all for you, um, yeah. environmentalists of color in that community, in that community of Chicago. I hear y'all doing good work. Keep it up. Yeah, we appreciate you. We're gonna have to have you um, introduce Juanita and I too. What was her name one more time? Rihanna Lynn. Yeah, we'll have to have you um, introduce yeah, us to Rihanna. Actually, I want to say she was. Um, 
based out of here, 1871. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, and the entrepreneur in residence here yeah. two years ago. Because I've heard of Food Trace, but um, I'm not, you know, I'll have to dig it up and see what it was said yeah. about. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and, and yeah, we, you know, in the, the environment, the EOC network, it, um, you know, it's based in the Chicago area, but, you know, like it's, you know, we, we want to see it grow and incorporate yeah. and encompass everybody because, it, you know, so... We were initially, when we first started this, we were like an offshoot of a group called the Environmental Professionals of Color. But what we found was that it didn't really, you know, being environmental professionals of color didn't really speak to the true breadth of environmentalists of color in the mm-hmm. Chicago area. You know, not all mm-hmm. of us are policymakers and, you know, um, engineers, scientists and consultants. You know, there are some of us that, you know, like the way I always describe it is, look, the mother of environmental justice was born in the Chicago area out in the south side. She was I don't I don't even think Hazel Johnson attended college, you know, let alone received a degree in environmental studies, you know, but you cannot tell me that Hazel Johnson is not an environmentalist when all she did was got you know, got President Clinton to sign the environmental justice bill. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. she's more important to the environmental movement than Aaron Brockovich. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, she's just as important to me as um, Rachel Carson, who wrote The Silent Spring and all that kind of stuff. This woman is the mother of the movement, you know, in, yeah. a, in a big, bad way. You know, so we um, so we dropped the P. Um, and we're just the environmentalists of color. And, you know, we, we you know, I'm glad you found us in, a, uh, you know, via LinkedIn and via uh, Juanita. And, you know, like we, you know, we want to we want to try and figure out way, more ways to help and share and help sp- um, help our brothers and sisters that are working in this industry and helping, um, you know, grow their organizations and such. So with that being said, is there a website that people can find um, the Garysburg Food Hub? Well, you go to the town of Garrisburg uh, website, but there's not really much about that on the website. Okay. Uh, uh, that's a Facebook group as well, town of Garrisburg, but it's not really a lot about the the, web, the, uh, the food hub project up there right now. We okay. just use it as a community center, and people know about the farmers market. Sure. Uh, I think the town knows about the plans. Um, we have community meetings. You know, pretty much all the town hall meet uh, town hall meetings once a month. We all talk about, we have a section where we talk about the community center and we talk about the uh, food hub related project work, but uh, we haven't really promoted it yet nationwide. Okay. We should do more of that. I, I uh, one, thing, one thing I did want to want to comment about uh, the environmentalists of color. Yeah. I think it's important that us people of color that are that consider ourselves environmentalists, uh, environmentalists, we have to stay active in this movement yes. because without us people of color in environmentalism, there's there's this constant uh, uh, what do you call it uh, lens of of uh, privilege yep. that's in the movement in this theme of environmentalism. And people of color, we we take away that lens of, of privilege because we come from situations where we're not privileged environmentally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, I want to encourage your group to reach out to other people from other areas because it's going to take people like you to br- bring more energy into the environmentalism m- movement because we cannot depend on others to do that work for us. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you, I really you look at that. what's happening in Michigan. Oof. Yeah. Like, we need more environmentalists of color yeah. being on guard so we can prevent situations like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you entirely. I actually went to college in Michigan, and I mean, it's a long history of just uh, 
environmental degrade, degradation in that area. You know, you we talk about we talk about Flint, but what about Muskegon? You know, who although they don't have lead contaminated pipes, it's a you know it's, um, lead contaminated water lines. It's an area that's been divested from, and they, you know, and so it's uh, it, the whole area is almost an environmental uh, EJ community at this point. You know, what about uh, what about Ypsilanti? What about you know? Detroit as a whole, you know, mm-hmm. and you and you talk about like some of the good works around um, food security and um, urban gardening, urban agriculture that's been going on in the Chicago area. Man, look at Detroit, like yeah. you know, because they had nothing going on for a long time. I remember, um, I think it was as soon as 2014, 2014 there was a point in time where Detroit had two, I, I want to say two um, grocery stores, like two big box grocery stores within the area, but their population was still like 600,000. So like it, you only had two grocery stores to service all of those people. So they've been doing some amazing work around urban agriculture, urban gardening and farm to table you know, um, food production. Yeah. Well, I just gave that example of, uh, yeah. of what's going on in Flint because everyone yeah. knows how popular that that, that situation is. Yeah. But what's going on in Flint is going on around the whole country. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. It's Every happening right down the street in East Chicago. Are, 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 are the majority or a good size of the population. Those areas environmentally are being left behind. Yeah. And if it's not for our environmentalists of color, at the table being at these discussions where resources are being allocated our areas are always going to be left behind yeah. so we have to groom more people to understand the environmentalist movement to be able to be stewards to our communities so that we can grow and foster you know a better future yeah mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that's just my belief but I'm not saying I'm, I know that, know it all I'm no I think that's trying to do some work yeah you, hey you're preaching to the choir here so yeah, exactly <laughs> um Man, I think. Uh, did you yeah, well, you know, earlier we were talking to uh, to a group of um, environmental educators um, that are working with with uh, in science, um, mm-hmm. in science education and environmental education with middle school and high school students, and so much of that is education and understanding of the environment, and you know, even for for us. You know, being in Chicago, you know, the third largest metropolitan area, we we have a very urban sense of the environment. Right. And um, and it, it's in many ways kind of disconnected, you know, in a way that if you're if you're a farmer, you're you're seeing that you're seeing the climate change patterns, you know, first in a way that we're just not seeing it. Right, right. And not just saying it's your experience. Yeah. It. I mean, like, how does it impact growing season? How does it impact, you know, when you plant, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, there's definitely had a, a, a change in how we do things. Farmers was paying attention. Um, but at the same time, weather is always changing. I, I think, yeah. you, you know, like, there's this resistance right now in the country between people want to acknowledge climate change or what what the things we're doing to our environment and i see both sides of the i see both sides of the spectrum um at the same time i like to remind people that you just got to pay attention to what the 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 environment is showing you yeah you know like if you if if you're having a tough time breathing it's for a reason 
Yeah. You know, like in an urban area, if you can't breathe outside, there's probably a reason. Some, there's something going on out there. Maybe what the factories is put into the air is bothering your breathing. And, you know, like even with your, like if your body is telling you certain things, maybe you need to change what you eat. And that's a part of the environment. Right, right. So we have to be more mindful of what's going on around us. And we have to encourage people to, to have an environmentalist mind state of paying attention well how the environment is affecting them. Yeah. And their communities. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you. Yeah, even thinking about health, and and the things we eat, and preventative health care for right. people of color. You know that we, um, you know, overwhelmingly, we're affected by by um, lifestyle. Yeah. Um, uh, health problems. Right, right. But then also, like in the bigger, in the larger urban areas, we don't yeah. have access to fresher, healthier produced yeah. food. We do wind up eating a lot of GMO food, a lot of um, heavily produced yeah. food, a lot of you know, a lot of steroids, a lot of uh, uh, yeah. chemicals put into our produce and our uh, meats and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Which is why you know, like, uh, it, this is why it's so important. Like, you know, looking at the privilege of. Other environmentalists, you know, like they talk about, oh, I know my farmer and this, that, and the other. Why, which, why it's so important that you shop at farmers markets and you know, like we have the um, healthy hub here in the Chicago area, you know, which is um, over in the South Shore neighborhood. We'll have to look up the exact address and everything for the website for the post. But um, that's a, that's an that's an opportunity for people of color to eat, get access to healthier foods, but then also to shop locally and keep those dollars circulating um, mm-hmm. within the local community, which is one of the things that you've been um, pushing and pressing for, Julius. Yeah. Well, let me say something, Brian. Sure. And I, I want I would definitely want to add this. There is more to environmentalism than the view that you can get from walking through nature. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We have to remember that. And I think too often the environmentalism movement is focused on nice views and uh, adventures yeah. instead of looking out for our communities. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was talking about with that privilege lens. Yeah. It's no, going to take, take people of color to t- take away that privilege lens because a person of color is too, much, is too focused on things that are very uh, immediate use needs to our, our, our community. Yeah. Like we need good, healthy food. That's why we need to be environmentalists because we need the healthy food. We need to be able to protect our water so people have clean drinking water. Yeah. People also need safe spaces to be able to travel. So right. all of these things are involved in the environmentalism movement. Yeah. But we too much times focus on nice lands, uh, nice uh, landscaped areas. Re- re- mm-hmm. Outdoor recreation. Can I go canoeing? Can I go hiking? You know. Yeah. And those things are nice and they're fine. And those things yeah. also add value to communities as well. Because yeah. I work with some tribal communities. Ecotourism has picked up the economy of their areas. So I'm not yeah. going to act like that's not important. Yeah. But their uh, environmentalism it, it, it's so it much more so than much just potential that affects so many things. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. why we have to open up how we look at environmentalism and who yeah. we consider environmentalists. Yeah. 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 Um, so we touched on the disabling to a certain degree. I mean, I did give the description of disabling. So do you do you feel like you're kind of disabling to a certain extent, like um, environmentalism or I mean, have you, you know, do you Cotton. have you? Yeah, cotton, soybeans. Well, absolutely, I'm discipling with the cotton because I have created the first cotton decor, home decor brand. Nobody has, and you doesn't know where you can go and say you're buying this type of cotton for decor. It doesn't exist. 
Wow. You can you can buy from merchandisers that have that cotton, which they get the stuff from Asia. That's merchandise for anything. Yeah. But there's no one that has a brand right now. I believe I've created the first brand of cotton as a de- uh, as a decor in wow. black cotton. Wow. Where can people connect with you if um if they wanna if they wanna learn more about you or more about your um about your company? Uh, Instagram. You can connect with me at blackcotton.us. Okay. And my, the website is blackcotton.us www.blackcotton.us okay. um, you can connect with me on Facebook Julius Tillery you'll see a lot of my articles LinkedIn okay. you know I, I post I have a lot of posts I, I post mm-hmm. okay. just talking about environmentalism conservation different various um, thoughts of mine as a conservationist environmentalist um alright Juanita do you have a uh Disabling moment that you want to mention or talk about? Well, I don't. Nothing that can top black cotton. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just yeah, and even you know, with the cultural history of cotton, you know, to to be disabling cotton, um, yeah, I can't top that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I'll tell you this: um, Af- a, a lot of African Americans has already been promoting cotton. I mean, you look at clothing, Michael Jordan. Oprah Winfrey, Beyonce, these people, they promote so much clothing around the United States, and they pretty much billions of dollars they've promoted of cotton products. However, they're not helping people who look like them source products for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's so much money that has been made off of people who look like us, but we have never been at the center of that profitability. We've always been at the back burner of that profitability. And to be honest with you, for most of the environmental conservation world, people of color are at the back burner in regards to uh, who are at the, uh, who leads financial decisions. Yeah. That's why a lot of us don't consider ourselves a part of these movements. However, disabling, I, I, I think I'm saying the word wrong, Disabling all these issues, we have to stand in front of these issues so we can be able to profit profit off of them. So then we can be able to take that lens of uh, of um, privilege that hurts our communities and stand in front to help our communities. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. No, I agree with you entirely. And I um I don't have a disabling moment. I do. You know what? I I'm. I think I've did this. I've done this before. I'm gonna have to throw it out again. You know, like and especially with Julius on the air and that, like he's. Helping do sobble the the material use industry, yeah, you know, because again, I mean, like this is something that especially farmers have been doing for the longest, you know, for generations, you know, like reusing materials, storing materials for future use, reusing creative reuse of the um the school that's now the uh the community center down in Garysburg and mm-hmm. turn it into the food hub, turn it into a um into a uh, business incubator, you know, that's you know the creative lens that's the the stuff that we've been doing so for so long you know people of color have been doing this for so long but i you know <clears throat> when i was working in the building material reuse industry here locally you know you had a lot of people saying that those organizations that are less than 10 years old introduced reuse to the chicago area <laughs> you know reintroduced yeah. it to you know but but that's what we've been doing for generations when we yeah. you know as people of color migrated up north you know, we brought that with us. So, 